Father, for those of us who have been believers for a long time, how many times have we read these words? We have delighted in them. We've treasured them. We have shared at least verse 1 with many who don't know Christ as Savior as an exhortation and an encouragement that they would come to trust in Christ. We have shared that same verse with those who are struggling in their faith and struggling with assurance to remind them that if they are in Christ, there is no condemnation from God. Oh, Father, these words are a delight and a treasure to us. There is a richness here and a depth here and a profundity with which Paul speaks about the greatness of our salvation and we want to see it for all of its glory this morning. Would you open our eyes to see and would you refresh our hearts as we see? And would you make us bold with our lips to declare these wonders because we see. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for the exaltation of Christ. Amen. It was not long after we were married that Regine began to observe my curiosity about everything. On one occasion, it became particularly clear after a a storm had moved through where we were living in Dallas and had knocked out the power literally to tens of thousands of homes across the city. And so we, along with much of the rest of the city, were waiting for power to be restored. And I think we were some three or four days without power. And finally, the, the power man came to restore service to our little group of homes. And so... I happened to be home on that occasion, and curiosity being what curiosity is in me, I immediately went out to talk to the man. So here he is, he's he's showing up, trying to do his job, he's climbing up the pole, and I am bombarding him with questions. So what are you doing? Why are you going up that pole? Why are you not going up the other poles? And how many, how many houses will be restored when you, when you do this? How many more houses will you have to serve today? And how many other poles will you have to climb today? And how does power come from? Where does power come from? I'm just bombarding him, right? And so he graciously gets power back on in our house. And after 15 or 20 minutes, I go back to our house. And Regine says, where have you been for the last 15, 20 minutes? So I've been outside talking to the guy that's putting our power back. And she just kind of hung her head and sighed. <sighs> Someday, your curiosity is going to get you in real trouble. And uh, I don't know that it's ever gotten me in trouble yet. I'm still waiting for that. But I am, I am still insatiably curious about everything. I... I, even from the time I was a kid, I would look at something and say, I wonder how that works and want to take it apart and put it back together and, and fix things on my own. Instead of having somebody else help me, I, I want to be the one that's going to fix it. I love, I love the book, The Way Things Work. And I, I love shows like How It's Made on TV. You know, you ever seen that show? You know, they've got three or four things where, how do you make a surfboard? And how do you make a, a Lamborghini? And how do you make a this or a that? And they stick all these things in there and they tell you how it's made. I find that incredibly curious. Regine walks in and says, 
Can we change the channel? I'm the guy, when you go to a museum, that reads every placard of every exhibit in every room because I have got to know. I just want to know how do things work. I, I want to find out the backstory and the inner workings about the way things work. If you are wired similarly to me, I've got great news for you. You are going to love this passage this morning because God has taken the curtains and opened them so that we can see the inner workings of our salvation. He's showing us how it is that believers in Christ come to be declared to have no condemnation. How can, how can God say to sinners, you are no longer under condemnation? How does that work? It is in this passage that the Apostle Paul reveals to us exactly how our salvation is accomplished and how the inner workings of the triune Godhead has produced our salvation to bring us free from condemnation. Now, we've been looking at this passage for a couple of weeks already, and we have said that, that the theme of these four verses is that Christ removes every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. So, so God takes condemnation from us when we are in Jesus Christ. But how is it that He has done that? How does no condemnation actually work? And in these verses, Paul gives us four truths about the removal of condemnation from us. And this morning, we particularly want to focus on the last two of these. There is therefore now no condemnation. Christ has removed every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. He says, first of all, in verse 1, just by way of quick reminder, He says in verse 1, there is no condemnation. He says, now there is no condemnation. Now, there previously was condemnation when you were in sin, when you were in Adam, before you were redeemed. You were entirely and only under the condemnation of God. But that was then, and this is now. And now, because you are in Christ Jesus, notice the end of that verse, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because you're in Him, connected with Him, chapter 6, baptized into Him by the Holy Spirit, united with Him, there is no condemnation for you. But notice as well that this is a selective removal of condemnation. It's not for everyone. It is only for those who are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, no condemnation. But only if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is nothing of condemnation that exists any longer. It is no longer an entity for the believer in Jesus Christ. It has ceased. It is gone in every sense. And not only is the condemnation gone, as we think about it typically, that is, there's no more judgment, and there's no carrying out of the judgment against us, but we've also seen that the removal of the power of sin is taken away from us as well. So there's no condemnation. We no longer have to live under the power and authority of sin in our lives. This is this is our reality. This is where we live. It's, it's not something we do. It's not something we pursue. It's not something we acquire on our own. It is the very reality in which He lived. We have a new identity. 
As Ray Ortland has written in his very helpful book, Supernatural Living for Natural People, he says this, A Christian is not above correction. A Christian is not always right. But a Christian is never condemned under the judgment of God. The gospel does not deny the enslaving grip of sin, but the gospel does deny the damning authority of sin. Oh friend, if you're in Christ, you have been set free. There is no condemnation. That's verse 1. There is no condemnation. Verse 2, secondly, the second truth that he reveals, there is no condemnation because of Christ. There is no condemnation because of Christ. Notice he says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, there was a law that used to run your life. It was called sin and death. It was, it was this law, this, this compelling, mandating a part of your life that said you must sin and you must be put to death because of your sin. You are controlled by sin. You're under death. You have no escape. It is that from which the law of the Spirit, the, the mandating work of the Spirit, who controls life, has set you free because of Christ. It is Christ's work that has set us free, and the Spirit takes the work of Christ, applies it to our lives, and we are set free from the sin that is mandating our sinful lives and sin, sinful activity. Again, Ray Ortland says this, Do you see how the gospel humbles us? For a hell-deserving sinner to be given a whole new life at the cost of the Son of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit is a joy to inspire awe. Do you see how the gospel encourages us to live in a penalty-free zone in Christ and to come under the gracious sovereignty of the Holy Spirit who writes the law of God on the human heart, that is a liberation to energize fighters. And do you see how the gospel searches us? The most deeply probing word here in Romans 8, 1 and 2 is the little pronoun me in verse 2. Can you say, excuse me, can your heart say with the hymn writer, no condemnation now, I dread... Jesus and all in Him is mine. Can you say with Paul, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free? Does set free describe what God has done in your life? Have you really come into Christ? Or are you just devoutly religious? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation because of Christ. And then Paul expands on that theme of being in Christ and how it is that we come to be in Christ and, and how this salvation works in us in verses 3 and 4. There is, thirdly, he says, the third truth that he reveals about our salvation is that there is no condemnation because God condemned sin. Because God condemned sin. Starting, uh, starting in my late teens, my grandmother would typically come to visit our family uh, for at least two months every winter. She would escape the cold of Canada, and at the time we were living in Florida, and she would come to, to Florida and, and visit us every, every uh, winter. And on, on one occasion, I, I took my grandmother and I said, let me show you the college campus where, where I go to school. And we were walking around the campus, and we came to one building, and, and outside this building is a metal box attached to the building. 
And I said, hey, Grandma, watch this. Now, Grandma was, Grandma was born in Russia and immigrated in the, the late teens of the 1900s and, uh, and uh, to escape the Bolshevik Revolution. And so she came with literally nothing on her back. She was not highly educated and didn't understand a lot of things that are contemporary, didn't understand technology and didn't understand how, the thing, how everything worked. And I knew I, could, I knew I could dazzle her with something. And so... So I said, watch this. And I, I reached into my back pocket, pulled out my wallet, and out of my wallet I pulled a piece of plastic. And I, I took that piece of plastic and pushed it into the machine. And then I punched some buttons on the machine. It was quiet for a moment. And then there was some whirring, and cash came out. And I pulled out the cash, and I got my plastic card, and I said, look. And in all sincerity, her one-word response was, Magic. How does it work? How does that happen? How do you how do you get a piece of plastic and you even get the piece of plastic back and you get cash? She didn't understand how it was tied to my bank account and it really wasn't free, but she wanted some of that. I think a lot of us are tempted to look at salvation in the same way. We hear no condemnation and we go magic. How does that happen? How does, how does it work that God can declare us to be no longer under His condemnation? What had to happen for that to take place? And what God has done through the pen of Paul is He has pulled back the curtain and let us see into the inner Trinitarian working of the Godhead to see how it is that our salvation is accomplished. And what we have actually here in verse 3 is not just a pulling back of the picture of of what God is doing to produce our salvation, but it is, some have said, the most succinct, definitive explanation of substitutionary atonement in the New Testament. So this is this is one of those key verses that you want to have your finger on and understand so that you can take rest in it yourself as well as have a means of communicating the gospel to others. What is it that God did? How, how does God say there is no condemnation? How does, how does God condemn sin? Notice, first of all, that God sent His Son. God sent His Son. Notice in the middle of verse 3, the law couldn't do something because it was weak, and God did something. God did send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God had to act on behalf of the believer. God had to act because the believer could not do anything for himself to save himself. The sinner could not remove sin from his life. The, no one can produce redemption for himself. He could do nothing to please God. There was no fulfillment of the law that he could accomplish. God had to act on behalf of him. In fact, it wasn't just that he couldn't do anything. Notice it the beginning of verse 3, what the law could not do. The law couldn't save him. The law couldn't bring about salvation. Now, there are a lot of things that the law could do. It could reveal righteousness. The law could reveal the righteous standard of God that God requires for those who will be saved. The law could reveal what sin is. The law could reveal the pervasiveness of sin in my life. But the Apostle Paul says there is something that the law could not do. Not just could not do, it was impotent to do it. It had no capacity to do it. What is it that the law could not do? The law 
was impotent regarding salvation. As one writer said, the law was powerful to perform the double function of condemning sin and saving the sinner. Or as another person has said it, God's law is a sharp accuser, but a helpless friend. So the law can point out sin, this is sin, this is righteousness, and you don't stack up because of the sin that is revealed through the law about you. Why could the law not save us? The law is not inherently weak. Notice what he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Paul doesn't say the law itself was weak. If that's what he meant, he would have said what the law could not do, weak as it was, period. But the law itself is not inherently weak. If someone, if someone could fulfill the law, he would be righteous. And aren't you glad for that? Because someone did fulfill the law and someone is righteous and it is through him that we have righteousness imputed to us. So Paul is not saying that the law itself is weak, but the law is weak because of the flesh. It was, it was the flesh that made the law impotent to save us. It was, it was the humanity of man tied to Adamic sin. So we are born in Adam, we are underneath Adam and underneath Adam's curse, and, and because we are in Adam, we have no ability to keep and maintain the law. And then even when we are moved from being in Adam to in Christ, even then still our flesh keeps us from fulfilling the law and maintaining the law on our own. The human person cannot save ourselves because we cannot keep the requirements that God set out through the law. So is there any hope? Is there any, is there any capacity for, for anyone to be saved? Notice what he says. The law couldn't do it. The law was impotent. Because it was weak through the working of the flesh, and he says, God did. God acted. And in fact, if you notice carefully, if you're using the New American Standard as I am, it says God did, and that word did is in italics. And the, the, the fact that it's in italics points to the fact that, that they have supplied that word so that we get a fuller sense of what Paul is saying. But that the word did, the the verb did, is not actually in the Greek text. And so what, what Paul has really said is this, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God. It's, it's almost akin to Ephesians chapter 2, right? So we were dead in our trespasses and sin, verse 4, but God. It's an exclamation point that says, you couldn't, but God. So God has interjected himself. God has stepped in. God has acted where the law could not act. God alone acted. And it took an infinite power, more than the law, to act on our behalf to produce salvation. And it is exactly who acted. And, and what is it that God did when he acted? When, when God interjected himself into the story of sin, what did he do? God acted sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He sent His 
own son. That little pronoun, his own son, is akin to the phrase that John uses both in his gospel and in his first letter, the only begotten son of God. So you know John 3.16 where that's used. Similarly, Paul says, or excuse me, John says in 1 John 4.9, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How is it that we come to have life? We come to have life through the Father sending the unique Son of God into the world. This, this unique, particular distinct, also wholly set-apart individual member of the Trinity. He sent Him. Interestingly, in, uh, in the book of Romans, there are only seven references to the sonship of Christ. And three of them are in this chapter. Three are in the first chapter, one in chapter 5, and now three more in chapter 8. It's Paul's way of emphasizing in chapter 8, the chapter that is about the working of the Godhead to produce your salvation and the sanctification that comes from your salvation and to emphasize that it comes from the Godhead, he particularly points to the sonship of Jesus Christ. It's, it's through the Son that these things have happened. It is an inner Trinitarian decision. In fact, someone has noted that God did not send a remote messenger when He was coming to deal with our sin problem, but He has sent the Son who stood in unique relationship to Him. The Father and the Son working together to work out the means of our salvation. And then verse 2, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of the Godhead, taking that salvation that comes through the Son, Jesus Christ, and applying it to our lives so that we can be saved. Now, there are others who are the Son of God, right? And we also are called the Son of God in places. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we are brothers of Christ. That, In all honesty, that, that, that phrase in Hebrews chapter 2 has always given me pause. I've always been hesitant to say, Jesus is my brother. Because there's a temptation to think of Him as just the little brother. But that's not who Jesus is, is He? He is the firstborn. And in in that culture, the firstborn meant He was the preeminent. He was the exalted. Yes, we're all brothers, but there's one brother that stands above. And that's Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we're all sons of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But there is one Son of God that stands infinitely higher than the others. And it took that one, who was infinitely higher than the others, to produce our salvation. It took a God-sized solution to deal with our God-sized rebellion against God. So, the Son was sent on a mission by the Father to live in the world. Not Not just on the planet, but to immerse Himself in the world to live among His particular people. And so, John says in his Gospel... Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 1, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. He came to His own, not not just to the creation that was His, 
but he came to the people that were his so that he would live among them. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exposited him or he has exegeted him. He has exposed God for who he is. This took the sonship of Jesus Christ to produce our salvation. It took, it took the inner Trinitarian working of the Godhead to produce our salvation. The Father sends the Son. Now we, we tend to gloss over some words of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. Well, that's great but we tend to focus on what I get out of the deal. I get eternal life. And we forget the first part of that verse. For God so loved the world that He sent His, not any other, but His unique, particular Son, the member of the Trinity, to accomplish our redemption. Oh, brothers and sisters, Never forget the uniqueness of the one who was sent by the Father to accomplish your salvation. It took, it took the sending of the Son. Nothing else would do to accomplish your salvation. Who is it that came? Who, who, who is the Son of God? Notice what he says in verse 3. God sent his Son also as the eternal God-man. So, so God sent his Son And then God sent His Son as the eternal God-man. Notice what He says, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Here Paul is defining the very nature of Jesus Christ and he is being very careful about how he is explaining who Jesus Christ is and he is making precise designations and distinctions about the person of Christ. Notice he says, He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is not saying He came in the likeness of flesh. He is not saying when He came, He was still God and He looked like a man, but He really wasn't. He he had the appearance of a man. He had the appearance of flesh, but He really wasn't a true man. No, He says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Some, some have suggested, in fact, this is part of the problem that, that John addresses in his first letter. Some have said that Jesus Christ, when he came, came only as deity and not as man. And friends, if Jesus Christ came only as deity and not as man, then he cannot be your substitute. Because it takes a man to stand in a man's place to absorb the wrath that is due that man to free that man from the penalty of sin. And if Christ is not a real man, then you do not have a real salvation. And Paul is very careful to say he is a real man. In fact, not just Paul, but this, this theme runs throughout the New Testament, particularly the epistles. First um, John chapter 4, again, listen to what, what the Apostle John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. 
How do you know if someone is speaking in accordance with the Spirit of God? Every spirit, every person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If someone says, yes, Jesus Christ was real man, real flesh, that's a person that is from God, that speaks God's message. And then notice what he says, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, everyone that does not say that Jesus has flesh, everyone who says Jesus did not have flesh, is not from God. In fact, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and it is now already in the world. In other words, you want to see an Antichrist? Just deny the humanity of Christ. Christ's humanity is essential. It is critical that we understand that Jesus Christ was a real man and it is heresy to deny his humanity. The Son of God has fully participated in the human condition, even exposing him to the power of sin and temptation without having a sin nature and without sinning. Listen to what Michael Reeves says in his outstanding book, Rejoicing in Christ. He says, He did not empty himself of anything, referring to the passage in Philippians 2 that we read earlier. He did not empty himself of anything he was. He emptied himself, humbling himself to be God with us in the form of a baby. The one on high became low. The creature, excuse me, the creator became a creature. The word became speechless. The very power of God became a helpless fetus. If the Son of God was to be the last Adam, to undo the fall, to be the head of a new humanity, to be one with His people, His bride, then He needed to become human. He needed to be in real, pinchable reality what had so long been promised, the seed of woman, the Word, become flesh. So when Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he is being careful to say he came as a real man. But notice he also says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he doesn't mean by that he came in the flesh as a sinner. No, he says he came in the flesh looking like any other human being, so he gave the appearance because of his bodily form, that he was coming as a sinner, though he was not a sinner. Why is it so essential that we maintain that Jesus Christ did not come with a sin nature, nor that he sinned? Because if he was a sinner, or if he had a sin nature, then he was incapable of being a sin bearer and satisfying God's wrath against sin. If he dies on the cross... As a, as a sin bearer only of his sins, if he dies on the cross as one who is underneath the condemnation of Adam and having Adam's original sin, then he's just one more sinner dying on a cross. There's nothing for him to impute to you. He has not fulfilled the law. He has no righteousness to account to you. He has no capacity to absorb the infinite wrath of God. But oh, dear brothers and sisters, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying he could not do it. Paul says he has done it because he did not come with sinful flesh. Flesh, yes, but not sinful flesh. 
Jesus was a really, really a man who was really God. He did not give up his deity to assume his humanity, and now his humanity is eternally tied to his deity. So even now, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, in chapter 8, even now he can stand interceding on our behalf. Why can Jesus Christ intercede for us before the throne of God? Because he is a man like us, genuine human tied to his genuine deity. All that Christ needed to be for us, he was, or he became in the incarnation. Who, who has a mind to comprehend the wonder of this truth? Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. And this is, this is what was needed, and this is exactly what he did. Theologian John Murray helpfully writes this, Paul is concerned to show that when the Father sent the Son into this world of sin, of misery, and of death, He sent Him in a manner that brought Him into the closest relation to sinful humanity, that it was possible for Him to come without Himself becoming sinful. There is emblazoned on the Apostles' language the great truth that when the Father sent the Son, He sent Him for the deepest humiliation conceivable for Him who was the Son of God and who in His human nature was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Oh, He sent, he sent His Son and He sent His Son as the eternal God. Man, this is, this is what it means to, to see our salvation in full relief and to see the inner workings of the Godhead producing our salvation. But notice also a third component of how God produces our salvation. Also in verse 3, God sent His Son to deal with the problem of sin. He sent His Son to deal with the problem of sin. Notice He says, He took on the likeness of sinful flesh and came as an offering for sin. And notice again, if you have the New American Standard, that little phrase, as an offering, is also in italics. That also means that that wasn't what Paul originally wrote in the Greek. What Paul originally wrote was, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now the translators of the Old Testament that translated it into Greek took that little phrase, for sin, and they used that in places in the Old Testament to refer to the sin offering that was granted so that, so that sin would be covered up and so that sin would be forgiven on a temporary basis. And so the translators now of our English Bible have said, what does Paul mean by that little phrase, for sin? Well, he probably is thinking back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and thinking about the offering that Jesus Christ provided. Well, that's certainly possible. But I think it is probably best to simply leave it the way Paul said it. Not just that, not just that Jesus came as an offering, but that Jesus came for sin and every aspect of sin. Everything that sin tainted and everything that sin touched and everything that sin corrupted, that's why Christ came. He came to deal with sin, whatever that included. It's important to recognize in at least two implications of this statement. He came for sin. One is that our fundamental problem is sin. 
The, the real problem of mankind is not injustice. The real, the real problem that you have is not unjust political leaders and rulers. Your, your real problem is not physical illness. Your problem is the same problem as mine, and that is, I am a sinner. And the thing that corrupts my life and twists my life and gives me heartache in my life and gives me problems in my life is sin. My greatest wounds are all self-inflicted. And there are a few other wounds I have, and they come from you, another group of sinners. Isn't that what we do? We sin against each other. And our wounds are the result of sin. Where you and I and all mankind need help is with our sin. Occasionally we'll have people uh, come by the church office and, and they are seeking some kind of particular help for a particular need, maybe an electric bill or gasoline for their car or a partial payment for rent or something like that. And, and so we'll take them in and we'll interview them and talk to them. And on, on occasion, I'll, I'll get those and I'll, I'll do the interview. And, and when I finish the interview, just to figure out, you know, who can help them and, and what the exact nature of their situation is and what they've done to try and find work and so on, at the end of that interview, I, I tend to, to like to ask this question or, or make this statement. This is not the biggest problem you have. And at, at that moment, most of them get big eyes, and it's kind of like they're looking around. How did you know? It's like I'm clairvoyant or something, right? How did, how did he read my mind? How did he know that's, that's not my biggest problem? I said, that's right. This is not your biggest problem. Do you know what your biggest problem is? Oh, yeah. I, 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 um, I'm going to need to make the car payment next month too and I, I, I don't have a capacity for making that car payment. Well, that's a big problem. That's not your biggest problem. <sighs> yeah, I, um, I don't have a job and I've really had trouble finding a job. And, and, and me and my wife are split up and, and that's a real problem. Oh, yeah, that's a big problem. It's not your biggest problem. And they're scratching their heads. What is he talking about? I said, your biggest problem is that you are a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you are under the condemnation of God. And all of the power of God is focused on you to pour out His infinite wrath and hatred against your sin. That's your biggest problem. Oh yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, that. As if the $127 utility bill is of infinite magnitude and their sin is trifling and unimportant. No, friends, Jesus Christ came to deal with sin. That's the problem that I have. That's the problem that the world has. That's the biggest problem, the biggest burden, the biggest weight. And that leads us to the second implication of this statement. That is that Christ's fundamental work was as the new Adam and as a savior from sin. He didn't come with a political agenda. Jesus Christ didn't come to remove Rome from being authoritative over Israel. It wasn't on the agenda. He didn't come for the purpose of performing healings. Now, He did some healings along the way, but that wasn't why He came. He didn't come to remove all poverty from the world. He said, in fact, the poor you will always have with you. He could have fixed that. 
He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He could have sold a few and, and paid for everything. But he didn't do that. He came for the purpose of dealing with sin. And he did just that decisively and eternally. What did Jesus do to sin? He says, we find in chapter 5, verse 6, he paid the debt of sin to God. We find in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that he overwhelmed sin by grace. We find in chapter 6, verse 6, that he conquered sin's power. We find in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that he puts sin to death. We find in the end of this verse that he condemned sin. Every aspect of sin that was a problem for mankind, Christ eradicated and Christ removed. Christ did to sin what no man could ever do. Which means, as one writer has said, to teach men, to teach that men can, can live a good life by simply following Jesus' example is patronizing foolishness. To try to follow Jesus' perfect example without having His own life and spirit within us is even more impossible and frustrating than to try to live and fulfill the Mosaic law. Oh, Jesus Christ came for the biggest problem we have and He accomplished what He came to do. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, this is the best possible news for you. You may not have admitted it until today, but your biggest problem is sin. You are a sinner by birth, and you prove that you are a sinner by birth by everything that you do. Everything you do, even the good things you do, are acts of rebellion against God that say, I don't need God, I can do this on my own. I don't need help. You're like, you're like the two-year-old that says, I can mow the lawn, Dad, I don't need your help. I do it, really. No, it is an act of rebellion against God. And when you are a sinner in rebellion against God and under His condemnation, He will, He will pour out His wrath on you. Unless you come to Jesus Christ who came to deal with your sin. You must, my friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Specifically, you must believe that you are a sinner that deserves the wrath of God. And then you must believe that Jesus Christ alone has paid the penalty for that sin to free you from the power of that sin. And you must believe that Jesus Christ's life is worth following so that you no longer pursue your own desires. You no longer live as if you are king of the world, but you live as if Christ is king of the world. And you follow Him in obedience to Him. And when you believe that you are a sinner, that Christ is a Savior, that Christ is worth following, then He will declare you to be righteous even though you are not yet right And He will remove the condemnation that He has against you. He can remove that condemnation. And I compel you, I urge you, I exhort you on the authority of the Word of God. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I command you to trust Christ. You must believe in Him because He is the only means by which the condemnation that God has against you will be removed. And He has done that very thing. Notice fourthly, God sent His Son. God sent His Son not only as eternal God-man. God sent His Son not only to deal with sin, but also God sent His Son to condemn sin. He sent His Son for sin, end of verse 3, 
and he condemned sin in the flesh. That word condemned is the same root word of the word condemnation in verse 1. It refers to a judgment that is made against someone, the carrying out of that judgment against that person, and the removal of the power against uh, of that person or of that entity. And so when when Paul says he condemned sin in the flesh, he has made a judgment. God has made a judgment against that sin. That is that the sin is guilty of of pulling people away from the righteousness of God and condemning them in sin. He has also carried out his judgment against sin. So he has killed sin, he has destroyed sin, and he has also removed the power and authority of sin so that sin no longer is powerful over him. As one writer said, he has deposed sin from its dominion. Sin no longer reigns. Sin is no longer supreme. The mastery, the power, the authority of sin are removed. Friend, if you are ever going to say no to sin... If you're ever going to say, I am not going to do this. I'm going to stop being this way. I am, I am not in this situation going to be angry. I am not in this situation going to be prideful. I am not going to be covetous. You can't do it on your own. If you will ever do it, it is only because of the end of verse 3, He condemns sin in the flesh. He condemns sin. He's the one who has taken away the power and authority of the flesh. Now, how did He do that? How did, how did God condemn sin? Because, because from Adam all the way through the history of mankind, sin has reigned. We're all born under Adamic sin. And sin has been reigning and sin has been ruling. So how did God condemn sin? Notice He says He condemned sin in the flesh. So does he mean by that, that that if we just work really hard and we persist and pursue and trying to attain the, the, the holiness that is in the law of God, that, that he'll remove the condemnation of sin? <laughs> no. He doesn't mean in our flesh. Who's he talking about in verse 3? He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the incarnated Christ. And so... Sin is condemned in the flesh, that is, the flesh of Jesus Christ. It is in the body of Christ that sin is condemned. It is in, it is in the person of Christ that, that sin is removed and power of sin is taken away. Notice verse 32, same chapter. He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He now also Uh, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He didn't spare His Son, but He delivered Him over. Why did He deliver Him over? So that the condemnation of sin would be removed from us. And it has also been noted that when Paul said in the flesh, he didn't just mean in the humanity of Christ, but he means that Christ is entered into the realm of human weakness to accomplish His work. So as one commentator has said, the flesh that made the law ineffective in dealing with sin was conquered from within. So inside, Christ came inside into this world, dwelt among humanity, lived among us, and killed sin from the inside out, as it were. Until Christ condemned sin, 
sin would always condemn us. Until Christ conquered sin, we would always remain conquered by sin. We would never stand victorious until we were made to stand victorious in Christ. And friends, that is exactly what God has accomplished for us. How did it happen that we can be free from condemnation? God sent His Son. God sent His Son as the eternal God-man. God sent His Son as the eternal God-man to deal with the problem of sin and to deal with the problem of sin by condemning sin. Oh friend, this should humble you. This should gratify you. And this should compel you. It should compel you to the last truth that we see about the removal of condemnation to consider. Fourthly, because there is no condemnation, there is sanctification. Verse 4 actually continues the theme of what God did in condemning sin. We, we, might, we might say it this way, God sent His Son so that the law of God could be fulfilled in us. Notice what he says in verse 4, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did He do that? So that. That's purpose. That's intention. This is, this is why God did what He did in sending Christ into humanity and as our Savior. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the requirement of the law? That's the law that says this is what righteousness is. And if you want to be righteous, this is what you need to do. It's, it's the perfect standard. It's, it's, the, it's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48. Therefore, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It is, it is what uh, Paul alludes to in chapter 13. Uh, he says in 13.8, oh, no one, uh, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. If you want to fulfill the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's done that? Can't do it. Can't do it on my own. So what does it mean that Paul, when Paul says it is fulfilled in us, Christ came so that this law, this perfection, this standard that says I can have no sin, I must love God and I must love fellow man with all fullness, how's that fulfilled in me? Well, certainly Paul could be thinking back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where, Paul, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Christ fulfills the law. Every command I couldn't keep, Christ kept them. Every single one of them. Every aspect of the law, Christ keeps. Christ, as the perfect, sinless man, goes to the cross, dies on our behalf, absorbs the wrath of God, and we believe in Him. And that righteousness that belongs to Christ is accounted to us, is imputed to us, so God treats us as if we had lived the perfect life that Christ did. It's certainly possible that that's what Paul means here, that, that the fulfillment of the law's requirement is in us through Jesus Christ, so that when we believe that that righteousness gets imputed to us. But I think Paul is actually going further than that. Because he says... We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, we are living our lives. We are walking. We are living. We are conducting our lives in a particular way. Now we are conducting ourselves and living our lives under the authority and the domain of the Holy Spirit of God. 
So the Holy Spirit at salvation, the Holy Spirit is granted to us. He comes to live in us and He starts working through us. He produces gifts in us and He he produces His fruit through us. We start to look like Jesus Christ. We start to do the things that God commands us to do. We start to do the things that God desires to do. We... In a word, fulfill the law of God. We start doing the law of God. For our salvation? No. In fact, Paul emphasizes, we we aren't doing this, notice what he says, according to the flesh. We're not living according to the flesh. It is not for our salvation. It is not our accomplishment. In fact, he even emphasizes that more. He says at the beginning of the verse, the law might be fulfilled in us. That is, someone is acting on our behalf, fulfilling the law in us. But He is, He says, producing, the Spirit of God is producing obedience to the law in us. We would call this progressive sanctification. We're growing increasingly like Jesus Christ. We don't live anymore the way we lived as unbelievers. We we don't indulge in sin. We don't live our lives by the flesh. We do live our lives in submission to the Holy Spirit of God. And friends, that's why Christ came. He he came to remove the sin out of us and to produce His life through us so that we are like Him. We saw this in chapter 7, verse 4, right? He raised Him from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He wants us to live for Him. And because of Christ, that is the very thing that He does in us. He changes us so that we live holy lives. How should we respond to this passage? How do we respond to this passage where God, through the pen of Paul, has has pulled back the curtain on the process of our justification and sanctification and shown us something of how it came to be? The the words of this passage should be far more than just interesting curiosities to us, like, well, isn't that cool how that works? No, friend, it should be much more than that. It should, first of all, make you fall in worship and gratitude and joy. As you consider this morning that you were guilty of condemnation, you did deserve condemnation, and then God sent His own Son to condemn sin for you. Not only did He condemn sin for you, but then He fulfilled the law of God and is working the fulfillment of the law now in you and through you through the person of Jesus Christ. These verses expose to us the magnitude, something of the magnitude of the power of God and the inner Trinitarian working to produce your salvation. And that that should produce great joy and great gratitude. Secondly, it should also produce in your heart a great delight to submit to the work of the Spirit in you. Your salvation was not given to you just so that you could be free from sin and then just go do whatever you want. Your salvation is given to you so that you can be changed, so that you don't have to be angry anymore, so that you don't need to be hostile anymore, so you don't have to be greedy anymore, so you don't have to be covetous anymore, so you don't have to be prideful anymore. That's why Christ came, not only to take away the penalty of sin, but to take away the power of sin so that you can be transformed. And the goal of the gospel is to get us to transformation. 
And so one way to respond is to say, Spirit of God, is there somewhere where I'm not, where I'm not putting myself in submission to you? And will you change me in that area? A third area where this can help you, this uh, section can help you, is these verses give assurance to your security. Oh, brother and sister, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you can never again be out of Christ. He is holding you. He is the one who is keeping you. You cannot jump out of His hand. He has an eternally powerful hand that can, that precludes you from jumping out or being taken out of Him. If you are in Him, you are in Him. Now, your subjective experience of that may at times make you feel like, I just don't think I'm in Christ. That's what we call assurance. You are in Him, that's security. Assurance is the feeling of whether I'm in or not. And brothers and sisters, this verse, these verses ought to make you feel the assurance, I am secure when I am in Him. Fourthly, these verses remind you of the depth of your need and the horridness of sin. Since it took the eternal God to die for you, how horrible must your sin be? There is no trivial sin. There's no gossiping word that can be overlooked or a covetous desire that is acceptable or a prideful boast that is right. When all these and every sin of mine necessitated the death of the second member of the Trinity to atone for sin, let that weigh on you that sin is infinitely horrible. And then let the sacrifice of Christ humble you. He paid for that. And fifthly, this passage gives us clarity with the gospel to share with others. What do you say when someone says, I don't know how to be saved, I don't know what to do with my sin? You read them this verse and you explain them this verse because this verse is the essence of the gospel. God acted. God acted by sending His Son. God sent His Son who was the eternal God-man. He sent His Son as the eternal God-man because that was the only way that He could deal with sin. And He has dealt with sin so that you can be removed from the power of sin and you can live in submission to Him. My friends, that's the Gospel. This verse is essential if we will share the gospel with others. How do you respond to this passage? You worship, you submit, you rest in assurance, you meditate on the the horridness of sin, and you speak the gospel. Oh, our Father, we thank you for these verses. What joy they are to us. We would be dead without them, eternally under your condemnation, hopeless and helpless. Our Father, we thank you that into that helplessness you have interjected yourself with the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, might we find him to be a greater treasure today because of these verses. Might we rest in him, be content in him, Might we fight against sin in Him and because of Him. And might we proclaim Him with boldness because He is 
the only means by which any of us might be saved. And Father, even as we say these things, would you also likewise compel us to walk with you because of what we have seen in these verses. Help us to see the power of the gospel to change us. And would we experience that transformation as we walk in submission to the Spirit of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.